Hi everyone, before we get into the first episode of PhD Pandemic, I want to give you a quick content warning. We are going to be discussing themes around sexual and gendered violence in this podcast today. Okay, welcome to PhD Pandemic Episode 1. This is a podcast about what it's like doing a PhD in the midst of a global pandemic. My name's Tim. I'm doing a PhD in, well, today I'm calling it a PhD in uh, digital health ethics. It changes day by day with how I'm feeling. And on the line, I've got Sophie Louise Hines. Hi, Sophie. Hey, good to be here. So before we get into, I guess, the nitty gritty of what your PhD is about and how you're dealing with this whole pandemic thing, I wanted to ask if you are excited about the Prime Minister Morrison's new fitness initiative, Barre. His new what initiative? His new fitness initiative. It's, it's Barre. It's, it's the hot new thing. What? I haven't even heard of this. You're going to have to explain it to me. <laughs> so he gives this press conference conference telling yeah. us what, what we're not allowed to do. And one yeah. of those things is what he is calling Barre, which I think he's trying to say Bar, the fitness program. Um, <laughs> and now it's exploded. Everyone wants to do oh. Barre. How did I miss this? I'm on Twitter like 24-7 and this has somehow slipped through my like, um, wow, wow. I'm going to send you this because, look, I think it's a great idea because online yeah. fitness is going off at the moment now that the gyms are closed. Yeah. I'm sure the Prime Minister could make a quick buck if he streams his <laughs> barre classes. No. Oh, he's going to do that greasy smirk while he does it as well. Terrifying. <laughs> So I'm going to take that as a, a strong no on signing up for Barre. No, um, definitely not. Not if he's running it. <laughs> well, with that out of the way, I just had to get that off my chest because I, okay, I'm cool. looking for someone to um, um to Barre with me online. It shan't be me, so tell sir. Me about... It shan't be me. Uh, so tell me about your PhD. What's, what's your PhD on? Um, So my PhD uh, is on sexual consent, um, specifically looking at sexual consent uh, communication between queer people. Um, So um, I'm both looking to find out um, how queer people communicate sexual consent and how they negotiate sexual consent, but I'm also looking to queer the concept of consent. So it's been uh, a very heteronormative concept based on um, sexual communication between men and women, and I'm looking to expand that concept to include um, sexual communication between people of all different genders and sexualities. Um, so I'm specifically talking to uh, people who have sexual experiences of those of more than one gender, so people who might be bisexual, queer, or pansexual, um, because I think that they have a really important insight into how uh, gender influences sexual communication uh, because they have that experience of uh, people of all different genders. So broadly, that's what my PhD is about. That's fascinating. And can I ask, when you talk about sexual consent, because I, I hear the term consent mm-hmm. a lot and I, I see it on a lot of mm-hmm. the, I guess, especially at the university, the recent advertising around making sure we get mm-hmm. consent, you're obviously defining a specific subset around sexual consent. What makes that different to, I guess, when we talk more broadly around consent in this context? Mm-mm. Well, I think consent, sexual consent has really been um, conceptualised as, um, you know, partici- willing participation in sex. 
Um, but I'm looking to expand that concept to more include uh, um, pleasure in that. So I don't think that uh, for sex to be ethical um, and to be good, uh, that it just needs to be, you know, willing participation. I think that there also needs to be the um, the pleasure needs to be added into that equation. Um, so it's not just you're taking something from someone and they're agreeing to give it to you, but it should be this mutual um, exchange of pleasure. And I think that's the discourse that's really missing from consent um, research and, um, yeah, there, there is, there, in the broader discourse, there is some talk about that, particularly in the queer community. Um, but when we're looking at the research, um, there's not much that looks at pleasure and consent. So I guess that's the angle I'm coming from. Mm, that's really interesting. And I guess we're at, in, at this time in history where we're, uh, we've got the Me Too movement and a big part of that is around um, um, consent. How do you see your research fitting into, I guess, these broader cultural narratives we're having or even, as you've said, expanding those narratives? Mm. Well, I think consent's really been talked about particularly since the Me Too movement as the line between sex and sexual violence and it's sort of been thought of this like thing that's going to save people from sexual violence right so um, there's this real idea that consent is the thing that can save us um, from this horrible problem of sexual violence Um, and it's really been thought of that way because it's conceptualized as as the thing between men and women that makes sex ethical or not ethical. Um, and I think that can be true, but I don't think it's taking into account the broader um, gendered relations that are influencing sexual violence as well. You know, people can't, people might consent to sex in a lot of instances, um, technically, you know, verbally, um, but it's not taking into account things like pressure and coercion, um, and the fact that people consent to sex for a lot of problematic reasons. So I think by putting pleasure into the conversation, it's saying, you know, not only um, have you got to, you know, make sure someone's agreeing to sex, but you actually also have to consider um, their pleasure and their enjoyment of that situation as well. And so I think when we're talking about these broader um, movements of consent, that's what's really missing um, is consent can't just stop at someone being willing to participate. It really needs to be pushed further um, and make sure that everyone's actually enjoying uh, participating in that situation. Mm, And it sounds like this redefining of the term consent also, just as I think about it, also brings a a temporal element in that it's not just I get consent and then we're good to go, but I've got to make sure that the pleasure is there throughout the um, the journey, I guess. And if Mm. it's not, then would you say that, that is also a way that consent maybe is withdrawn if that pleasure is is no longer there for one person. Mm. I, I also think that we need to move away from this sort of transactional thinking about consent, um, which is really we think about it in that way because we want it to have it as a thing that we can use in a court of law um, to make to convict someone or protect someone from being convicted of sexual violence, right? So we're really thinking about it in this transactional black and white on and off sort of way, but that's not how sex works. It's a very fluid thing. Um, it's, you know, someone can, you know, their their willingness or their wantingness to participate can peak and trough throughout a whole sexual experience. So I, I think 
the way that we're conceptualizing it in this real transactional way um, needs to be, it's really difficult, right? Because we, we want to have this, you know, thing for the legal context that we can use to prosecute people. Um, but that doesn't really reflect the way that sex happens in real life. Um, so I almost think we need to separate the legal sphere and the actual um, you know, interpersonal sphere of sexual relations because I don't think those two things really match up with each other. Um, and I think the Me Too movement and a lot of research around consent is trying to bring those two areas together, um, but it's not really um, the way that sex works. It can't really be, um, you know, placed so neatly into a legal framework, um, if that answers your question. <laughs> Yeah, no, it does. And it raises so many, like, it's, it's such a fascinating topic and such a, a a relevant topic for our time. And I, I guess mm. thinking about our time right now as we move to, um, I guess, not having as much physical, physical contact with people, how do you think, um, I guess, consent is going to, or have you thought about how consent is going to evolve as we have um, now when we are, either having lots of physical contact because we're quarantined with um, our partner or we're not seeing them at all because maybe they don't live with us. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, look, I'm really just worried about people who are, are stuck in homes that aren't safe. Um, mm. I think that's at the forefront of my mind at the moment. I mean, we're going to get into it, I guess, in this podcast. You know, it's really difficult to do this research Um thinking about consent when, you know, people aren't even meeting up with people to have sex anymore right now. So, yeah, it's complicated. I I haven't really thought about, you know, consent in the pandemic sense, but um, I guess my mind's really more worrying about things that are really, um, that are really needs to be addressed immediately, like things like domestic violence. Um, I guess that's where my mind is at at the moment. Mm. Well, I guess before we go on to those more pandemic-related um, topics, which is something I thought I would never have to say in my life while interviewing someone, <laughs> could you tell yeah. me just a little bit about before um, pre-pandemic days, how are you going about doing your research and coming up with these answers um, to the questions you're asking? Yeah, so, I mean, I guess all of last year I was doing desk-based research, so um, doing the literature review and um, creating my methodology and going through um, the ethics process and I got my ethics approval and I had my, um, uh, what's that milestone we have to pass? <laughs> um, confirmation. Confirmation. Yes. Thank you. I did my confirmation. You delete it once you've done it. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's gone. It's out of my mind. I forgot about it. Um, yeah. So I did all that last year. So, you know, that was great. Um, and then this year I started recruiting for my research um, so I've been running focus groups, in-person focus groups um, of about anywhere between three to seven people. Um, I ran three of those and they were absolutely fabulous. Like my participants are amazing and they've really expanded my mind of how I was thinking about this topic. Um, and yeah, um, I had two more focus groups booked in and unfortunately I've had to postpone them um because of the pandemic obviously we're not going to be meeting up with groups of people anymore um so yeah it's been pretty upsetting because I was really looking forward to running those focus groups and I was I was like really in the groove of running them and you know I was super excited um 
they it's not really um, an option to have those focus groups online. Um, you know, it's a very sensitive topic, obviously, and, um, you know, that interpersonal interaction is really what I'm looking to get out of these focus groups. So, um, you know, seeing how people's ideas about consent change um, when they talk to um, other people about about consent. So, you know, what I found running these focus groups is the way that people think about the topic, like, almost completely changes to that from the start to the end of the focus group as we all have this um, group discussion um, where everyone sort of has their input. So you can't really replicate that over um, the internet. Um, I mean, you could do it, but I really don't think the quality um, of the insights that I would get would be as good. But also my participants aren't comfortable having the focus groups online anyway. So I guess that's where I'm at at the moment. I've paused the focus groups that I was doing um, and I'm just kind of waiting to see what happens, I guess, how long this lockdown is mm. going to be. Yeah, and I can I can em 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 empathise with that as someone who has also um, had to uh, shut down some focus groups and it is, I guess, mm -hmm. um, it is just one of those things, as you said, some of these focus groups, we hold them because of that interaction and it is really hard to get that online especially when you've got participants who maybe um, are uncomfortable being online or even just, I know personally moving to Zoom meetings, it's it's a skill to interact online. It's a skill I don't think I've mastered mm. yet. No, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's totally different. And, and you can't read the body language of the other people, you know, when someone's wanting to speak, when you might need to pull back, you know, it's a really fluid process running focus groups. Um, and, yeah, it's just... The quality you could do it online, but I just think it'd be very rigid and and not have that like amazing fluid conversational nature that you get when you do them in person. Mm. And so that's I guess one major way this issue has impacted your PhD. Have there have there been other impacts on your research um, due to the pandemic? Oh, so many. <laughs> I mean. I mean, as I was saying before, if we're just talking about the research itself, um, not my personal circumstances, so, I mean, we can start start with just the research itself. Um, you know, obviously sexual and gendered violence is a, um, a difficult topic to research at the best of times. So I think for me, I found that I really need to be in a, a positive um and balanced headspace to be able to do this research and to be able to engage with the literature um, in a way that's not going to be damaging to my own mental health. And I think with all that's going on right now, um, with my mind being in, under so much stress um, from the way that the world is and the things that are happening with my friends and family, it's um, really impossible to engage with this literature um, on such on such an intense topic in a meaningful way um, when I'm under so much stress from what's happening with this pandemic. So I think other than the actual, um, you know, running of the research, it's, it's more that engaging in this topic area is just di really difficult when you're not in a good frame of mind. Um, so I think that is probably the biggest impact that's having... Uh, right now is I just I can't even begin to think about you know um, 
sexual and gendered violence when <laughs> when the world is burning around us. So, yeah, I would say that's probably the biggest impact right now. Mm. And I guess I wanted to, I guess I'm, I'm imagining that at some point people are going to listen to this podcast who maybe aren't doing a PhD or don't understand what a PhD entails. So can you tell us a bit about what it actually means to engage with a topic? Because some people might think that a PhD is just sitting and thinking all day, but can you tell us a bit more about that process and how it's been disrupted by this um, added world-ending stress? Well, yeah, it certainly is sitting and thinking all day a lot of the time, but, um, you know, that's a lot more intense than people might realise. So, you know, in any given day I might sit down and read, you know, three or four articles um, of other people's research um, who have looked at um, sexual consent, um, who might have looked at gendered violence, um, and I'll be engaging with that research and taking notes and, um, you know, thinking through what that research means for my research. So that means on any given day I might be looking at, um, you know, anecdotes and people's stories of sexual violence. Um, I might be, you know, reading the statistics about um, the the state of gendered and sexual violence. So... I think I think it's difficult. People who aren't doing research don't understand the impacts of deeply engaging um, with a topic um, that is troubling um, on a you know eight hour a day sort of basis. Um, it's you know it's, it's really all consuming. And, and as I was saying before, if you're not in a sort of stable frame of mind where you can look at that research in a way. Um, that you're taking it on and you're processing it and you're thinking through how that um, is important or applies to your research. If you're, if you know, if you've got other stresses going on, to read about the statistics, to read about the stories, to read about the research outcomes of other projects um, is really, really difficult. Um, you know, so yeah. Does that sort of answer your question? Yeah, no, it does, and I totally, I can. I just agree that it is hard to engage with a topic, especially one which is so so personal, so much about other people's lives um, when there's so many other things going on in the world. Um, can you tell me a bit more about, I guess, we've talked about your research, but how are you going in general in this new weird world we live in? Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah I think I'm doing a lot of... Um, you know, emotional labor for my friends and family right now. Um, most of my friends have lost their jobs um, because I used to work in the arts before I went into academia. So I have a lot of friends from the arts and the events world. Um, so most of them have lost their jobs. Um, you know, all of my siblings have lost their jobs because they're also in the arts um, or in the casual workforce. Um so obviously that's a big stress. Um, my housemates have also lost work. So we have, you know, we went from having a really stable, great um, household income to me being sort of the main income right now. And, you know, I'm on a PhD scholarship, so that's not much. Um, so I also have a family member who is going through cancer treatment right now, a very close family member who's in Sydney. Um, so I obviously cannot visit them at the moment. So that 
you know, it's taking a big emotional toll on me because I was planning on visiting them once a month uh, while they're going through treatment. Um, and I have another family member with lupus who I can't visit right now because they're obviously immunocompromised. Um, my mum works on the front line at Woolworths. Um, so she's obviously, you know, there at risk um, every day. And she takes care of my 90-year-old grandma on the weekends. So, you know, there's a lot of things going on in my life right now that impact my ability to have a restful mind and do this research in a meaningful way. Um, so, you know, I'm sure that's the same situation for most people who are doing PhDs right now as well. Like most people, their friends and family are in turmoil um, and everyone is stressed. Um also, I'm renting a house that has been sold um, and we have no idea when we're going to have to move out of this house. So that's, we're in a precarious rental situation. And since my housemates have lost work, I don't know if we applied for another rental, whether we would even get a rental. Um, so there's lots of things going on um, that are stressing me out, causing me a lot of anxiety. Um, and yesterday we got an email um, from the university reminding us um, how important it was to stick to our deadlines despite the pandemic that's happening right now. And I really don't think the university administration, at least, um, you know, my supervisors and my discipline are very good, but um, I don't think the university administration really um, understands or realises the impact that this pandemic is ha happening having um, on graduate researchers and how much that impacts their ability to actually sit down and do work. You know, before this was happening, I would go into my office. Um, I would sit down for seven, eight hours a day and I could relax and I had my own space there and I could fully just immerse myself in this research. Um, right now, I'm working from my bedroom, um, which is not a peaceful and quiet space. Um, there's a construction site next to us. My housemates are home as well um, because they've lost their work. Um, I'm obviously stressed about everything else. So it's, it's not like I can just sit down for seven, eight hours a day now um, and, and, and have peaceful and restful time to get on with my work. So, um, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, and I think I totally agree that um, the, I guess the response from universities has been a bit, it kind of it feels like they don't realise that we've got these lives outside of the PhD and that our lives are so interconnected to our networks and our communities. And the way I've kind of, I kind of think of it is we're all experiencing this collective trauma. Like I'm in a mm. okay position, similar to you, that I've got a PhD stipend, but you know, I've got family interstate, I've got friends who have lost their jobs. And it's this kind of just complete feeling of uncertainty that clouds my mind over time. And it sounds similar to, I guess, some of the feelings you're experiencing. Yeah, totally. And uh, like you said, it's a collective trauma. I totally agree with that. How do you think, like if this was the utopia that we uh, wish we could live in, how do you think the university should respond to um, these circumstances? What what would be a good response, not what we've seen so far? It's a really good question. Um, I think the thing that is the most troubling is they've told us that we need to um, – be clearly communicating with our supervisors just exactly how this is impacting our research um, and, 
you know, keep a sort of paper trail of the impacts um, and then they may consider giving us an extension on a case-by-case basis um, if this the impact on the research has been significant enough. But when they talk about impact on the research, they're talking about things like um, you can't do your field work, um, you know, you can't run your focus groups, um, you, you could, don't have access to a lab. They're not talking about um, the emotional um, the emotional turmoil and the emotional stress on our lives um, and the fact that that actually might stop us from being able to engage um, with our research in a deep and meaningful way. Um, so what I would really like to see from the university is them acknowledge um, that it's not just those sort of immediate physical um, restrictions on our research, like not being able to meet up with people or access labs, um, but it's also, as I was saying before, the the mental energy and the mental space to be able to actually go on with the research. Um, you know, I just <laughs> I just want to see that acknowledged. I think there's it's <sighs> when the administration is not acknowledging. Um, the stress that's on you, it makes you gaslight yourself, right? So I'm here at home and I'm every day sitting at my computer with brain fog, not being, I have to read a sentence three times because I'm so stressed about other things. But I've got this email from the university saying, oh, don't forget about your deadlines. You should be able to work at the same um, the same pace you were working at before. We are, we understand you're working from home and this might be difficult, but we expect you to keep your deadlines. So what that does is it makes you gaslight yourself. You're sitting there at your computer and you're thinking, you know, I'm, you know, look, I'm so unproductive. I'm not getting anything done. Um, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm obviously a horrible researcher. Um, you know, I can't even adapt to different situations and all of these things that go through your mind. And then what I end up doing is just sitting at home feeling guilty, um, which makes me more stressed. So I think if the university acknowledged that this is having um, emotional impacts that actually stop you from being able to do your work at the same capacity, um, it would really help people to just be able to relax and, and be a bit easier on themselves. Um, so other than that acknowledgement, I think what I would like to see um, also is just a blanket extension to everyone, maybe three months, um, because I think they're asking us to document those impacts that we're having on our lives to our supervisors. Um, and a lot of them are emotional impacts, as I was saying. So we're telling our supervisors that, but the university doesn't actually count those as significant impacts. So there's a real disconnect between what everyone's experiencing and what the university actually considers to be significant impacts. So, um, you know, and also that's putting labor emotional labor on our supervisors who are already probably overwhelmed with their own research and their own courses that they're running and we're having to send them these you know emails saying how much trouble we're having and and you know what strife our lives are in so I just don't think it's fair on anyone um so yeah I'd like to just see a um a, an extension for everyone without them having to explain um why this is impacted on them or how this is impacted on them because everyone is impacted by this everyone's in the same boat um i don't think you can quantify this sort of impact um in any sort of meaningful way to give individual people different types of extensions
Mm, yeah, I totally agree. And I think, I think I really love what you said around that, you know, your supervisors are also being impacted if you have to go to them, because I think about like at the moment I'm freaking out about, okay, do I put in a new ethics application to change my methodology? And, and then I think about, oh, those poor people in ethics having to manage all of this at one time. Oh, God, we all yeah. just had a, as you said, a three month extension, everyone can just take a moment to breathe yeah. and we can do some good research when things start to calm down. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I know at my university, um, at uni- University of Melbourne, um, they're really strict with the deadline. They really want us to finish in three years. Um, and there's this real overarching pressure on us as PhD students to submit on time, you know, because it makes them look better. They get money from the government, et cetera, et cetera, all the reasons why the university wants you to finish on time. So even during this pandemic, they're still just reminding us of that pressure to finish and like, you know, good research takes time, you know, good research needs breathing space. Um, good research, um, doesn't work well under these intense time pressures. Like obviously they have to set some sort of a time limit. You don't want people there for six, seven years, but I think that for what they expect us to produce, that three year time limit is really tight. And, you know, with a pandemic added on top of that, it's impossible, I would say. Yeah, you know, I think a pandemic on add, add on, added on top of most things would be uh, make it pretty impossible. So I guess I want to bring things to a slightly lighter topic as we uh, move towards the end of the interview, because I, I feel like like my brain is just like bubbling away um, and I feel so so much empathy towards that experience as someone who you know is sitting at my own desk thinking exactly the same things and I'm hoping that by doing this podcast and by having these conversations that all the PhD and master's students can feel like oh it's not me who's the problem it's the system which is Mm -hmm. the problem um what's your go-to item to hoard that's that's what I really want to know out of all of this what are you hoarding (laughs) Um, oh, I'm trying not to hoard anything. Um, if you had to hoard something, what would be your, what would you love to just go and buy a trolley full of? Oh, probably cheese. I bought three types of cheese the other day. I don't need three types of cheese, but I just don't want to run out of cheese. (laughs) That is such a good answer. Yeah, Yeah, literally, I bought tasty mozzarella and parmesan cheese the other day. They're not even exciting ones. They're just all the basics, but, you know, (sighs) got to have it. I've been um, stockpiling Daryl eggs. Oh, no way. And only because I went to my Woolworths and they were starting to run out and I was getting worried that I would get to Easter and have none. So I... I may have bought a few packets. I can actually give you a really hot tip about Easter eggs. So David Jones gets all the really fancy Easter chocolate in um, to their stores for Easter, you know, for all the rich people to buy their fancy Easter chocolate. Um, But because their stores are closed, they're selling off their fancy Easter chocolate really cheap online. What? (laughs) Yeah. 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 So get on that. Because you can get some, you know, bargains on some real fancy chocolate. 
Oh, that's so good. Okay, that is on my list of things to do after we finish this interview because um, I've already started eating that Daryl Lee chocolate and it's not going to last that long, I think. Yeah, get on it. My Yeah, my friend was working at David Jones before this happened, so that's why I have this insight. <laughs> my other question, which is a bit more, I guess, uh, not as serious, but I've been really struggling to find a good playlist to keep me going in these times when I'm stuck at home, have you got like a top three social physical um, distancing songs that you're uh, keeping your groove to at the moment? Oh, not like songs specifically, but I've got some really good Spotify playlists that people could look up. So there's one called, um, yeah, there's one called Southern Gothic. So it's all like, you know, gothic-y kind of songs but with a southern twist that I really like um, for just like kind of a chill um, but slightly spooky vibe. Um, And then classic for when I'm attempting to do work um, is like a good vaporwave study list. I love a good bit of vaporwave. So I guess those would be my two suggestions. Amazing. That is awesome. My final question. Now, this one is 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 yeah. similar to the Barre question. It's a bit of a pop culture, but have you been following Tina Arena on Instagram? No. Okay. Well, this is just a public service announcement. If you're not following Tina Arena, she's doing <laughs> live streams on Instagram under the heading Quarantina Arena, and it is giving me so much life. Oh, light. my God. Yes. That's so good. I feel that Quarantina Arena could potentially be the next Prime Minister. If I had to choose someone to lead us through this <laughs> pandemic, I think Tina Arena would be the one. Look, I am so down for that. I love Tina Arena. So let's do it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Um, I feel like I've learned a lot about um, a new area of research I didn't know much about. And um, I feel much more... I don't know, connected to another person who's going through a similar um, PhD pandemic. Uh, I'm hoping you've enjoyed this chat as well. Me too. I have. It's been a very uh, cathartic. (laughs) I'm usually a much more joyful uh, person than this, just, uh, you know, PSA for everyone. But obviously these are hard times and I'm, you know, I'm mad. And I do not blame you for being mad because, you know, PhD pandemic, we need to hopefully see some more empathy from our universities ASAP. Yes, that would be that would be awesome. That'd be really great. So as we close out our little interview today, if anyone is listening who wants to chat about their PhD topic, you can um, just go to Twitter and tweet at me at Timothy Calariotis, or you can just Google PhD pandemic. Um, and if you need some help with advocacy, let me know. There's lots of great resources coming out and I'd love to point you in the direction of ways you can advocate to your university so that they can be a bit more understanding in what is a world-changing crisis, which I think requires a bit more empathy than what we're seeing. Um, yeah. Do you have anything you want to plug, Sophie? Any? I, I know you're on Twitter as well. Yeah, follow me on Twitter. I'm a big, I'm a big Twitter nerd. Um, so my handle is just my name, which is Sophie Hines, which is H-I-N-D-E-S. Um, hey, I'll also be doing interviews, I guess, soon. Um, for my research so if anyone wants to be interviewed um, anyone who's bisexual queer pansexual has experiences with multiple genders 
um, if you want to be interviewed on your, you know, thoughts and experiences around sexual consent, um, please get in touch and I'll, I'll, I'll add you to my list of people um, to contact when I get up to that stage. Um, I'd love to hear from you. Wonderful. Post, post-pandemic interviews. So make sure to wash your hands, make sure to practice your physical distancing and um, hopefully I will get to chat to you or hear, hear you, chat to you if you're a PhD student and hopefully you'll hear from me at some point in the future. Stay safe in this new world.